doing incredible work here, and thank you so much for your hospitality. Well, shall we pray? Let us pray. Living Lord, we thank you that we can declare that our chains are gone and we've been set free. We thank you that we can declare that you are here, that you've gone before us. We thank you that we can declare to the world that our God still speaks. We can declare to the world that our God is alive and that our God is King. So Lord, as we gather together your gathered assembly of this local church here, we pray that in these next few moments that our hearts would be open and as Pastor Stretch prayed moments ago that we would taste and see and know, that we would leave this place different, changed after having encountered you so different that we would be empowered to go into this world ready for mission and to join you in this work. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, over the last few days with the ENC community and the church family here, we have been walking through a section of scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is an incredibly theologically rich section of scripture that covers Matthew chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven. We're in it, Jesus stands in the mountain and he declares what this kingdom community that he has come to establish looks like where he gives the people of God who claim to follow him, who claim to live under his reign and rule, who claim to be within this kingdom community, he gives us these boundaries in which you and I are to live in. And in it, we are faced with some of the most pushing and piercing and severe and difficult commands of Jesus where if we were to read the Sermon on the Mount straight through Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, we should feel uncomfortable. We should squirm. For as Jesus stands on the mount and declares, after declaring who is blessed, he encourages the followers that they are salt and light. And then after to be claiming to be the fulfillment of all of scripture, the fulfillment of the law, he then begins to push his followers by telling them that they should not only not murder, but they should not even be angry. And he continues to push them by saying that not only should you not commit adultery, but you should also not have a lustful eye towards your brother or sister. He says, not only should you not divorce, but you should not divorce at all, whether you have a certificate or not. He pushes us that we should not even make vows and to let our yeses be yes and our noes be noes. He encourages us that even when we experience persecution, we should pray for those who are persecuting us. We should turn the other cheek. And it's no longer enough, he says, for us to love our neighbor, but now we should also love our enemies. 
And he goes on to push these kingdom followers as he establishes these boundaries to have a single-minded focus on him. When a world declares that we should store up our treasures here on earth, he said, store up your treasures in heaven and have a single-minded focus on him and him alone. And as he continues to push the listeners and us today, he then closes his sermon with this bookend, where he declares to all of the listeners who have just heard these pushing, piercing, and difficult commands of Jesus, he says this then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock, though the rain comes and the torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat up against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And here Jesus completes his sermon. And it says that when he had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike any teachers of the law. So not only does Jesus push the followers with these severe and difficult commands, it might even leave us wondering, Jesus, did you really mean that? Many listening probably wondered the same. And he closes it by saying, almost acknowledging that he knows how difficult it is because he declares that this path and this way is narrow. And yet, he says, those who obey my teachings, those who actually do what I say are wise. And so we are then faced not only with these pushing commands, but now we are faced with will we follow or will we not? And yes, of course, if we were to expand our biblical theology, we would acknowledge that, of course, this is a life that is lived through the cross. This is a life that is lived in grace. This is a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But it is still a life to be lived and to be done. For the suggestions of Jesus, as difficult as they are, they aren't suggestions, but they are commands to be lived and to be followed. And so, who then is this Jesus that gives the people of God these boundaries to live by? And I find it fitting today on Transfiguration Sunday to step back and answer this question. Uh, several messages ago, we took a look at Jesus and we declared that he is not just any teacher, but he is the ultimate teacher, the ultimate authority. Therefore, the life to be lived for the Christ follower is to be lived exactly as he declares it. But it seems fitting on today, this Transfiguration Sunday, to acknowledge that he is also more than just an ultimate authority, even more than a teacher but he is king, he is king.
and to give ourselves a fuller understanding of what this means when we say that Jesus is king, it would help us to hit the reverse a little bit and back up. You see, several messages ago, we talked about Jesus being the ultimate authority and being the fulfillment of all the Torah. And we did this by first taking a look at God's covenant with Abraham, where God declared that the people of God would be a blessing to the world. And then we looked at God's covenant with Moses, where he expanded this covenant and gave the people of God boundaries to live by. And when they lived within these boundaries, the world would be able to peer in on the people of Israel and see that they are a holy nation, a light to the world. And they would be able to peer in and not only see God's goodness, rescue, and grace, but they would be able to see what God looks like. But as soon as Moses comes down from the mountain... Almost immediately after the people of God made this covenant with Yahweh, after they declared, yes, we will do everything that the Lord commands of us, they had quickly forgotten about God's rescue and grace. You see, I have this friend by the name of Janice who lives in the western suburbs of Chicago. And Janice has a bit of a lead foot. She's one of those people that is always in a hurry and is always late. So whenever she drives anywhere, she is driving as fast as she can to get from A to B. And Janice, one afternoon, she was driving in her van, her family van, on her way to a volleyball game to meet one of her daughters. And of course, Janice's style, she was running late. And as she was on her way, she looked up in her rearview mirror to to discover red and blue lights flashing behind her. She pulled over and the officer asked her why she was in a hurry and as she twirled her hair and apologized, the officer let her off the hook and showed her grace. Well, two hours later that day, she was then driving her husband's vehicle, a totally different vehicle, and she had quickly forgotten about the goodness and grace of this police officer. And sure enough, as she was on to the next event, she was running late, just as she always was, and she was hitting the pedal to the metal to look up in the rearview mirror and see the, to see the, I forgot the colors of the lights. (laughs) wanted to say yellow, but they're certainly not yellow, to see the red and the blue lights. And she looked in the mirror, and as she saw the officer making his way towards her, it was the same police officer. (laughs) Do you think that he let her off the hook that time? She'd quickly forgotten about the goodness and the grace of that police officer. And you see, when we walk through the Old Testament and we see this God of mercy, this loving God who establishes this incredible covenant with his people where he moves in in an act of grace and mercy and declares that he will be their God and that they will be their people no matter what. And every time he moves in and even elevates their sinfulness for his purposes, they quickly, almost immediately forget about God moving in in this act of grace. And this is the theme in many ways in the Old Testament and as God moves in towards the people. And in fact, the very people that God establishes this covenant with was to be a unique, a countercultural, a different community. 
So different that the world would take notice. So unique that the world would stop in their tracks and they would see the goodness and the love of Yahweh and they would be able to see what God looks like. And yet, this community that was to be different suddenly wanted to be like everyone else. They looked around to the other nations, the other nations that had a king, in fact, and they said, ah, everyone else has a king. We want to be just like them. And Samuel, their leader at the time, took this incredibly personally, and he goes to God, and he begins to lament and cry out, and God assures him that it's not Samuel that they are rejecting, but it is, in fact, Yahweh that they are rejecting. And he encourages Samuel to go and actually listen to them. And so Samuel goes back to the people of God, and even though they were supposed to be a unique, different, countercultural community, he says, you don't really want a king. You don't really want a king, because if we become like all of the other nations, that means that whatever king we have, he's going to take our sons. He's going to create weapons. We're going to go to war. He's going to take our cattle. You don't really want this, and yet the people still cry out, we want a king. We want to be just like everyone else. We want to have a king of our own. And this, of course, the demand for a monarchy was a theological issue, as we can see. God declares, Samuel, it's not you that they are rejecting, but it is me, Yahweh, that they are rejecting. And so this is this continued theme that we see throughout Scripture with the people of God, that they so quickly forget about these incredible covenants that God is making with them. And we see this continued theme of mistrust to Yahweh. And so this yearning and this longing for monarchy for a king was this yearning and longing for security feeling like if they were the rest of the nations, then perhaps, perhaps then they would have security. And yet, just like God, God moves in again and even takes their sinful desires, which was seen as a rejection of God, and he elevates it for his purposes He elevates it for his purposes. And we see that a man by the name of Saul is king, and this eventually then is moved on to King David, which, of course, we're moving from A to B pretty quickly, and we know that there's so much incredible story in between here, but we eventually arrive to this young man by the name of David, who was the least likely, really, to be king. And yet, here he is anointed king, and God expands yet again this covenant that began with Noah, and then Abraham, and then Moses, and he expands it here with David, and he makes this incredible promise to King David. He says, now David, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. And then he says in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, 12, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, you will rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Down to verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. So here, the people move in, and in the act of rejecting Yahweh as their leader, demanding a king, God still moves in and creates something for his purpose. And he declares that the house of David, that the throne of David would rule forever and ever and ever, that it would be a permanent throne, which meant a permanent future for the people of Israel. And yet, of course, there were boundaries within this covenant, much like all of these moments when God expands the covenant. The king couldn't just be any king, but God declared that the king must be an upright one. He must love God. He must live for God. He must live within these boundaries. And as we continue on with the story of God, we see time and time again, after King David, kings rejecting Yahweh. And whenever a king was disobedient, and not living within the boundaries, Israel was coming to ruins more and more, which eventually led to the splitting of kingdoms and exile. And as we arrive into the prophetic words, we see many prophets crying out to Israel, reminding them that they have forgotten about God's goodness and mercy and yet lamenting over the state of Israel that they found themselves in, that they have forgotten about God's goodness, mercy, and grace. And as they were calling the people to return, they were also looking ahead because they knew and believed that God was a God of promise and that God promised that there would be a king like David whose throne would reign eternally forever and ever and ever. And so they would prophesy and declare that this king would come again. In Isaiah, we see, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And and then we learn about what kind of king this would be, that he would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. And then we are reminded of the promise. It says, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So here we see that this throne will indeed reign eternally. And the one to reign on this throne would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the people of God longed, they ached, they lamented, they hoped. As they were in a time of Advent, if you will, a time of in-between times, looking forward, longing for this King to come to establish an eternal and everlasting kingdom of peace and protection, a King like King David. And we arrive then to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, in a time when the people were experiencing oppression and darkness and longing and aching and lamenting. We arrive to chapter one to this incredible genealogy 
which many of us skip over to today, but when we read this genealogy, we discover that something's happening, that something is brewing. Something is going somewhere, which shows us this incredible continuity from the days of Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets. And then we arrive into Matthew chapter 1, and it shows us this continuity between the Old Testament and into the New. And we arrive then at the end of the genealogy to this incredible birth narrative in which an angel appears to Mary and declares, you are going to give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him, listen to this, the Lord will give him the throne of David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. Many who were longing and waiting and aching and lamenting and hoping for this throne to come and be established knew exactly what the Lord was doing. And this baby, born in a manger, fully human and fully divine, grows up. And in the middle of the beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter one, he makes this profound and amazing declaration as he calls out to the people, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Repent in the good news. And then we see this Jesus, this king, begin to establish this kingdom that is bursting forth into the world, and he begins to teach us what the values are of this kingdom. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us this incredible moral portrait of what it means to live in this kingdom in which he is the king that he is establishing. And we see as we read through the Gospels that he is unlike any king that has ever come before him. That this society that he has come to establish is not one of war, but of peace. Not one of coercion, but of love. It is not a one that is power in the empire, manipulation, or violence. But we see in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to squash the other, but instead he comes to ennoble the other, to empower the other. He came to teach us to love the other, even the hard to love and live victoriously. And then this king stoops down low and submits himself to death on a cross. But the good news for us today as that the promise is made to David that this king, that this throne would reign eternally, that this king would live eternally. The good news is the grave could not keep him in, the tomb could not keep him in, but three days later, he was raised to new life, and the launching of this new creation and the new people of God and this kingdom of God is burst forth. And then we see him in 
Acts chapter one then ascend to the throne and the gift of the Holy Spirit is then given to the birth of the new church and therefore we can declare today, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that this king is not a distant king but because of the fellowship of the Trinity, the king is among us. The king is here. And so then, when we reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, you and I, by declaring to be in this kingdom community, are signing on to this task by living out the demands, by being this community of love, by being this community of laying down our life for the other, by being this community that takes on cruciformity just like Jesus did and laying down our lives always for the sake of the other. That's what it means to be a Christian. To declare allegiance to this king who reigns eternally, who came to establish this kingdom and paints a moral portrait of this in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. But the good news for us today, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, when we read in Matthew's gospel, chapter five, six, and seven, we read that the path is narrow, that this is difficult. The words of Jesus are pushing, piercing, and severe, and they are no doubt difficult. And yes, we read that we are wise if we actually do and live the words of Jesus if we actually put the practices on. But the good news is, this king is a special king. And therefore, this community is not a gated community where some are unwelcome. But the floodgates have been open. For this king is not just any king, dear ones, but this king is the way, the truth, and the life, the healer, the prince, and the peace, the vine, the lamb that was slain, the forgiver of all sins, Emmanuel, which means God with us, almighty God, Alpha and Omega, the anointed one, the bright and morning star, the author of eternal salvation, the beginning and the end, the bread of life, the living water, the chosen one, Christ, the lamb, the comforter, creator of all things, deliverer, eternal, the word, the revelation of God, the resurrection of life in our rock. And this king came to offer all who believe and all who are thirsty salvation, the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, a new heart, a new family, a place to belong, resurrection, eternal life, transformation, community, purpose, a path, grace, love, freedom, restoration, identification, and belonging. That my dear ones, is the king that is among us. And this king declares for all to come and live in the fullness of this kingdom. Boundaries, yes, but freedom and belonging and purpose. And we are reminded of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter five of what kind of kingdom this would be for he declares, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, all you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good 
and you will delight the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Because of God's promises fulfilled, because of this king who reigns on the throne eternally, has come to establish a kingdom where the floodgates have been open. All who are thirsty are invited to come, and we see this in Revelation chapter 22, which declares, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Hear what he has to say. I am the root and the offspring of David the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water of life, come. That is our king. The invitation, dear ones, is here to come. Are you then thirsty? Are you thirsty? What water are you drinking from? Because there are plenty of wells within this world, but there is one well that we drink from and have this life, this belonging, this transformation, this holiness and a place to belong. Since moving to Southern California nine months ago and taking on this new role of senior pastor at Paznez, at our installation day on May 22nd, the church gifted our family, we have two boys, five and six years old, they gifted our family annual passes to Disneyland. And in nine months, we think we've been there somewhere in the ballpark of 21 times. No shame in declaring that. We love Disneyland. It's a great time. And last July, we took our boys there one afternoon. While Jeff was at work, I went with another family. And we were standing in line at the Star Wars ride or Space Mountain ride. And as we were standing in line, it was an incredibly hot day in Southern California in July. And there, as we were in line, there was this water fountain off to the corner. And I vaguely remember first walking next to it and looking in and just being disgusted as, we'll just call it debris, was clogged there in the drain and was keeping the water from actually going down. So we're standing in line and I'm talking to one of the other moms as all of our kids play. And I turn around to see my son Noah, who was four at the time, with his face there in the water drinking it up with no shame. Now, I'm a bit of a germ-phobe. And so at first, I turned away and let my girlfriend deal with it that I was there with that day, the other mom. But then I grabbed him by the shoulders, and I wanted to tell him about all the gnarly, horrible diseases that there are in this world and how it was going to take him down and how I'm going to be nursing him back to health for months and months and months on end. But then I just looked at him in the eye, and I said, sweetheart, did you know that mommy right here in her backpack has ice-cold Dasani water that I packed for you early this morning? And did you know that all you had to do was ask, why did you drink from this? They said, I was thirsty. 
I was thirsty. The tragedy for us in this world is that so many of us are drinking from the convenient, polluted wells of this world that might bring a momentary time of satisfaction, but it doesn't bring life. As Jesus says, it brings death. And the wise one not only drinks from the waters and the wells from Jesus, from the kingdom of God, but we actually live that life in freedom. For the living water within this kingdom of God, yes, establishes boundaries, but it brings freedom, eternal life, and belonging, and empowers us to live this kingdom life that he came to establish. So perhaps you can relate to the story of the Israelites who time and time again forgets about the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God that moves in and you turn and you drink to the polluted wells of this world. The king is among us, dear ones. The king is among us and invites all who are thirsty to come and drink from the river of life. Will you come? Let us pray. Living Lord, oh, your kingdom is so good. Your kingdom is one of life and healing and freedom and restoration. We thank you for the redemptive work of the inbreaking kingdom of God that is even here breaking and bursting forth in this space today. And Lord, as your kingdom is bursting forth, we long for thy kingdom to fully come, to be established in the fullness. And in the meantime, as we, we wait for that, for the collision of the new heaven and the new earth, may we, the people of God, drink all who are thirsty to drink from you the living water. In your name we pray. Amen.